Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Today I'll be speaking with Susan Shepard Carlson. In addition to being Minnesota's First Lady from 1991 to 1999, Susan Shepard Carlson is an attorney and a retired Hennepin County Juvenile District Court Judicial Officer. It was through her experience in juvenile court that led to Minnesota's efforts in combating the harmful effects of prenatal alcohol exposure. In 1997, she launched an initiative to promote Minnesota's effort on FASD education and prevention and co-chaired the Minnesota Governor's Task Force on FAS, resulting in almost $7 million annual funding for FASD prevention and intervention services. Recognizing the need for the private sector to be involved in FASD advocacy, in 1998, Susan formed the first affiliate of NOFAS, the Minnesota Organization on FAS, now Proof Alliance. Over 20 years, she has led FASD policy, advocacy, and training efforts on the national level as a member of the ICC FASD Justice Work Group, which led the effort in getting the ABA FASD resolution adopted in 2012. Other achievements include author of Tools for Success, an FASD training guide for juvenile justice professionals, facilitating train-the-trainer conferences on an FASD curriculum for juvenile justice professionals at four sites throughout the country. 2006 through 2007, directed the Hennepin County Pilot Program to screen and assess adjudicated juveniles for FASD. National Speaker on FASD, justice issues, and its impact on society. Susan currently is on the board of directors of NOFAS and chair of the Legislative and Policy Committee leading the effort to pass the Advancing FASD Research, Prevention, and Services Act. Susan received her Bachelor of Arts degree in political science from the University of Minnesota and a Juris Doctorate degree from Hamlin University School of Law. Remember to walk a mile in his moccasins, and remember the lessons of humanity taught to you by your elders. We will be known forever by the tracks we leave in other people's lives, our kindness and generosity. Take the time to walk a mile in his moccasins. Mary T. Lathrop, 1895. I am so honored to have with us today former first lady of Minnesota, and someone who I consider to have decades of trailblazing advocacy and a true champion for the FASD community. And we're talking about a very exciting topic today. I am so thrilled to be welcoming Susan Shepard Carlson to FASD Hope. Susan, welcome to FASD Hope. Well, thank you, Natalie. It's a pleasure. And I've had a chance to listen to some of your podcasts. And 
I'm honored that you've asked me and I hope that we can have a great conversation that will uh, help other advocates understand how important uh, what we're doing uh, on, the, on the legislation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you to know that you listen to our podcast is just, oh my goodness, that's so awesome to hear. So thinking about your work and your advocacy in the FASD community, not only did it begin and and start while you were the first lady of Minnesota, but it also continued for many years after that. And it's bringing us to where we are today, which is really exciting. I think things we were, you know, I was telling you, I think things are starting to come to fruition. So let's talk about how you started in this journey of FASD advocacy and a little bit about your background and, and what led you into it. Okay. Well, it almost seems like a lifetime ago, <laughs> Natalie. As, as you mentioned, I was first lady and Arnie was elected in 1990 and we were in uh, office for uh, two terms. And as first lady, you get asked to do a lot of things. And it was interesting because my interest when he first got elected was in um, child protection and those children in, in that have been taken out of the home. And then I went to a conference for uh, new first ladies and they said, oh, you don't want to do any downer issues. And so I kind of went away from that. And Arnie did a commission uh, that I co-chaired on children, uh, Action for Children Commission. So that started uh, my journey, but it wasn't until Arnie's second term when I became a referee. I call judicial officer, because when you think of referee, you think of somebody in a black and white shirt. And I was assigned to what we call the detention calendar. And that's the calendar that you're making the decision on whether to keep the kids in the detention center. They're in there because of serious offenses or violating probation. And so you have to make that decision. And you have, at that time, they now have everything computerized, but they had files. And a lot of them had very thick files. And so I would spend before court going through and looking at these files. And I was overwhelmed by the issue of substance abuse in these families. And uh, you would look at, I, I started looking at psychological evaluations um, and I would see where they would talk about brain damage after birth, you know, that would be part of the psyche bell. But then I began to wonder about what about this prenatal alcohol exposure or drug exposure before birth? And I would, you know, I'd go home and I'd talk to Arnie about, you know, what, my life was like in court. And, um, and a personal story that I haven't shared with a lot of people is his first wife was an alcoholic and they lost their first child from SIDS. She was 21 days old. And he always, and this was long before FASD was even identified in, in the United States, but he uh, always won. It was, she smoked and drank uh, a, you know, a lot. And so we had talked about that. And so that was, a, that was a little bit of the personal connection and then the professional with seeing these kids. And so then I just started educating myself. And uh, I don't know, you've been doing this for what, 18 years? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Almost 19 years. Our son will be 19 in July. Well, I started reading everything that I could and it was, well, 1996 was when the IOM report came out. And then 
uh, Ann Streisko's books came out, the secondary disability study, and I just read everything that I could read. And uh, Ann Streisko's was, I just loved her. I got to know her and uh, I, everything she said made so much sense. But kids that I were seeing had a lot of the same kinds of learning problems, behavior problems, diagnoses, and oftentimes you would see in these reports that they were prenatally exposed. And so we had the information. And so that began the journey. And I little did I know that I, you know, how many years later I would, you know, here we are. Um, but I'm a policy wonk. I've always been a policy wonk. And so uh, we decided to do a governor's task force in, in uh, Minnesota. And because I thought, you know, I'm seeing it, but our other, you know, what's going on around the state. Now that was invaluable to go around the state and the task force was big. I mean, it was about 50 people and it was all different walks of life, uh, but they were policy influencers. And we would, we went nine communities around the state and I would hear people say, well, I don't know why I got invited, but now after hearing all the, this testimony, I understood. And so that became the blueprint for what we did in Minnesota. And then after Arnie left office, I really felt that there had to be a private uh, part of this. And that's when I started, uh, formed MOFAS, uh, which is now Proof Alliance. And, uh, you know, we were small. We started out uh, with $5,000 grant. And then fortunately, and I think it was about 2004, the state decided to take some of the money that we appropriated and give it to an organization that dealt solely with FASD and uh, MOFAS was it. So that's how we got started. And one of the things that I, from the very beginning, I felt we needed a visible population, similar to with autism. We needed to have of the kids and the families come to the Capitol and share their stories because that's how you effectuate change. And so we were very deliberate to make sure we increased our diagnostic capacity. We did have a diagnostic, diagnostic clinic at the University of Minnesota. And I think at that, when we started, they were diagnosing maybe 50 a year. And now it's, I Sarah Messel from yes. I can tell you, yeah. you know, I think it's a thousand. I mean, it's still not enough. I think that those that want to get a diagnosis can get a diagnosis. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Especially with that legislation that was passed and that was in, enacted in uh, in August for um, in Minnesota for having every child in foster care tested for an FASD and having foster care parents and caregivers receive FASD education. I share that a lot in our podcast because I think that is so important. I would love to see every state yeah. have that. Yeah. You know, that was my, I guess my wish Yes. From the very beginning was this is a special population. And if we can't identify these kids and we know that if we identify them, they'll do much better. So that was, I was so happy to see that finally yes. come to fruition. And yes. I agree, you know, we need to make that happen. Yes. And uh, so then I got involved on the national level with the justice work group and we, got, we did the ABA resolution. And so yes. I, I've just always been involved in, in public policy and then I had always said I was going to give Proof Alliance or MoFast 20 years, and I did. And then, <laughs> and then I, it was kind of a, a moment where I, I just 
I kept hearing some of the same stories from parents that, you know, these, the system doesn't understand my, my child. And I, I kept hearing that. And I would hear other stories that, oh, when I get the education, I'm, I'm the one that knows a lot about this, but it's those in the school districts or in the, you know, the justice system that don't understand. And I thought, you know, we've, we've made some, we've made a lot of progress, but we, we need to uh, take this up a level. So that's when I, I wanted to, uh, you know, go, go on NoFest and start working on national level public policy. Which is wonderful, which is wonderful. So let's talk about what happened prior to COVID-19 with the legislation, because we were all so excited about a year ago and then COVID happened and then, oh no, we haven't heard anything about it. And I'm so thrilled to hear that we're getting things back up again. I'm honored to be a part of this process. Let's talk about getting things where they were prior to COVID and where things are starting up again. So we were able to, we have the bill introduced September, I believe, 2019. And we were just moving right along. We have Senator Klobuchar and Senator Murkowski as, as chief sponsors in the Senate. And the bill had never been introduced in the House before. We got uh, Senator or Representative Betty McCollum, who I've known since she was in the Minnesota legislature. She's a great supporter. And she said, right, yeah, I will introduce it. And then we, uh, I believe, had five or six other House members. And we, that was before COVID. So I was uh, on Capitol Hill a lot. We touched base. There's an addiction. There was a freshman uh, addiction caucus that we were all set to go meet with and get more sponsors. We were going to try to get a, get a hearing that spring and get the bill uh, heard. And then, in fact, Representative McCollum invited me out to D.C. It was a year, a year ago for the State of the Union to publicize the bill and what we were doing and to, you know, draw those connections with other representatives. We did that and COVID. And then COVID. But, you know, I, it's, not, it's not all bad because, and we can talk about that. It gave us a time, you know, an opportunity to look at the bill. And I've been working with Dr. Sally Anderson, who's the retired executive secretary of the ICCFASD, which is the federal coordinating group. And she's been, in, I've worked with her on the Justice Task Force. And of anybody on the federal level, she understands FASD and the agencies. And she was instrumental in getting the NDPAE on, on the agenda. There's nice. just a lot of things that Sally is behind. So she and I work together. And I think the bill that we have is, is much better. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about it. So, and that's wonderful that everybody was able to use this time to, to make the bill better and to, and to strengthen it. And I've only attended the one monthly meeting, but I was so excited, you know, just to hear what was going on and how, how this is progressing. So let's talk about what are some things that are coming up now since this is starting to take motion again? We're still in the meeting with the health LAs and Senator Murkowski, you know, Senate's because of what's going on politically yeah. with the impeachment, it's been right. a little difficult to get their attention on this. So right. we're okay on the House side, uh, but as, and so we're waiting to get that final approval on the bill language. And, yes. and as soon as we get the final approval, we're hoping within the next week or two to have that happen. Then it'll go get drafted and it'll get introduced. 
So our goal is to have it introduced sometime by the end of March. What I'm optimistic about is that uh, Representative McCollum's staff is, you know, she's now a chairman of a appropriations subcommittee. So I was a little leery that she may not be able to have the time to do this, but this is a priority. And because of her chairmanship, she's not taking on as much other bills. She's going to put more attention on this. That's fantastic. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're at. And, but we're, in the meantime, we're, you know, you have to draw all these connections. I've reconnected yes. with uh, Representative Trone from Maryland because he was chair of the Addiction Caucus and they're reestablishing that. And the thing about COVID that makes, it's going to make our job, I think, easier is that everything is virtual. Virtual, exactly. Virtual. So now we can have this, we can set up a great hearing and it can be experts from wherever. And so the committee will have the benefit of, yes. of that. So, yes. but the thing with the bill, and, and I, this, I think this is hard for people that are not into this public policy is that there are basically two prongs to this. And the first is you've got to get the language authorized. The, and so the bill is an authorization bill. And the first authorization bill, where a lot of this language originally came from, was back in 1998. All of that's expired. So there's no authorization language in the federal code anymore. So any of any appropriations, like CDC has an appropriation of 11 million, and HRSA, another agency, has 1 million, and then NIAAA that does all the research, they just take the money out of their existing appropriations. So theoretically, they could say, well, there's no authorization, so we don't have to fund it. That's why this is really, really important. So we have to get it authorized, and that's a different committee and different committee members. And then once it gets authorized, then we have to go to the appropriations committees. And so we say a certain amount of appropriation, but they can say, well, boy, you need a lot more. I mean, we'd hope that's what they'd say. We're asking, we're, we're saying 50 million, which it sounds like a lot, but when you look at everything that we're asking for in this bill, it really isn't. And this is what happened with the autism. And a lot of this money is going, the additional new money is going to HRSA, which is where the autism, but it was all because of parents. I mean, they got organized and they talked to their congressman. And so we're following, you know, in their stead. So, yeah, so that's the two prongs. So, and the appropriation process is delayed. Generally, you have to have appropriations requests in uh, this month, but because you have a new administration, it's going to get delayed, which is to our benefit, actually. So we, we can get the, uh, the bill passed and then we can go back and say, well, now that you've passed that, you've got you to give us some money. So it, it is a silver lining that we're able to use this time to improve things and to make things better than, than last year. So that's very reassuring to hear. And, you know, it's funny because on the parent side of it, any parent I speak with, you know, fellow parent of a child or a young adult with an FASD, we're all like, yes, legislation, legislation, but people don't realize how much work and language and time goes into it, you know, and, and that you've been working so long, you know, on so many different levels. I think that this is a good reminder to folks out there, you know, who want this legislation that it's happening. It's just, you know, it, it's got to happen in the process, you know? 
you know, they think local, everything's local, which is true. But this sets the stage. This is what the Nat, you know, that if we at the on the national level can't say this is a priority, then it's, it's, I think it's more difficult than for, for states and local communities. I mean, we did it in Minnesota and you can, and states have done it, but this really helps out. In fact, there's certain provisions in the bills that gives money to the states to develop their strategic plan and gives them money to do uh, funding for programs like we do at Proof, you know, at Proof yes. Alliance for parents. Yes. So, but it provides that. And you know, I did train a lot of trainings around the country of judges and those in the justice system. And that was the most frustrating thing was they'd say, oh, yeah, this is wonderful information, but we don't have any diagnostic capacity. I mean, it was. And so the bill also addresses that issue. That's a huge issue. And that's in the Center for Excellence. And so you got to have that leadership at, at the national level to, to help out other states and, and local communities know, you know, resources. Yes. So it's, it's wonderful to be a part of this NOFAS Policy and Training Center Forum. And we meet monthly because hearing everything, you know, as a parent, it, and I've shared it, it took us 15 years to get a diagnosis for our son. So to hear, you know, that so many people have the same goal and the same objectives and that, like you said, if this can be magnified and if this can be brought up to the country on a national level, not just what every state is doing, oh my goodness, how many people, how many lives it it will reach and just improve and impact. So I'm just so thrilled again to hear about this. So let's talk a little bit about the legislation itself. You mentioned the, you know, you mentioned the different aspects of it. Speaking on behalf of parents and caregivers who would love to see more support for our children and teens and especially young adults with FASD, how will this new legislation address those needs? And I think that is probably the most important question uh, that can be asked because that's the one we've, you know, we've, over the years, we've had money going for research and, but we've never, a lot of that money doesn't filter down to, to parents and to families. And so if you, you know, we're going to probably go over the sections of the bill at the forum, but that I was very, as you go through the bill and look at the language in every section is we made sure that, that it included, and there's funding for different areas that it included language that said for those with FASD and their families, because one of the things I learned that a lot of times uh, even a court order, I'd say, you know, this, this child has FASD and you have to know about FASD. And I remember one, uh, there was, a kid was brought back on probate, on a probation violation while he was caught smoking cigarettes. And, and I said, do you really understand, you know, the disability? And so as you go through the bill, Every single section, there, there's that. But in specifically, we were talking about the funding that's going to go to the states. There's funding that's, that's going to get for services or for individuals with FASD and families. And then there's community partnerships. And that's uh, communities that are trying to take existing services and try to figure out how we 
uh, incorporate FASD. And it's developing uh, these initiatives that provide FASD-informed services to individuals and families. And then there's best practices, same thing. And there's transitional services. Yes, uh, yes. And I think this is a really important section. Yes, yes. It's by, and it's through the FASD lens again, but it's housing assistance, it's vocational yes. training, medication monitoring, mm-hmm. housing models. Yes. Uh, recruit, train, and provide mentors for yes. individuals. And that was... Anne Streisgut, I mean, she stressed the the mentors, and I think that is hugely important. Vocational training, and then you get to, oh, the Department of Education, and now this is, we're having discussions about that because uh, it's requiring the Department of Education to provide training, to do surveillance, do training, and information on FASD to the schools around the country. And we've had this discussion that we should include adding FASD as a disabling condition. And so that uh, the reauthorization is probably gonna happen sometime in the next two to four years. Uh, It was last done in 2004. So the initial thought was to wait and have it put in there, but I don't know, we may put put language in there that Mm -hmm. that adds it, which would be a game changer, I think. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely. the one thing that would directly impact a lot of uh, parents because then they the schools then have to you know you know, you know that uh-huh. they have to um, absolutely have but it does have language in the bill that in in administering idea that they make parents educators and advocates for children with disabilities aware that children with FASD have the right to access general curriculum under the least restrictive environment. So it gets that into the Department of Education, what I think is hugely important. You know, I was part of a justice work group with ICCFASD, and I don't believe there was any person from the Department of Education that was ever a part of that group. Wow. You know, just a sad state of affairs. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a section on individual services for, for people with FASD. And that that's another whole list of, wow. and it's through, again, through the FASD lab. We try to get it from all angles um, because the one thing I know that's powerful is information and understanding yes. about the disability. And I'll never forget, this is a, per, a personal story. Arnie and I were at a dinner theater and a waitress came up and she says, you know, I just want to thank you for what you've done. And I said, well, what did they do? And she said, well, I'm a foster parent. And, you know, before I had classes at uh, MOFAS at the time, I, we just struggled. I did not know how to deal with uh, my son. And it was like night and day after she had those classes. And I thought, well, that's what needs to happen. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's, I know it's hard for parents when they look at you know, this legalese, this language, how is this going to impact? But if we tried really to make sure that it's, it's going to get down to that level. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. So parents, if you're listening, this is very reassuring news, parents, because not only is it giving FASD the awareness and the funding and the support, but it's also putting out FASD as a brain-based diagnosis, a brain-based disability, which requires so many systems to acknowledge 
FASD as such. And we know parents and caregivers who learn the brain-based, the neurobehavioral approach, we know that when we make that paradigm shift, that quality of life improves, you know, we're able to focus on strengths, we're able to just change the way things are and accommodate. So this is reassuring to me to hear you say that this is putting everything in an FASD lens. Yeah. And I think it's really important to have our systems be on the same page as the parents. And that's also what is so important in this bill, that those in the education system, the justice system, the substance abuse, that they'll have the understanding similar to what they have about autism. I mean, when we would have some, uh, a child with autism in our cart, it was a different, a whole different, how you dealt with that child. And if, when I, someone would have FASD, I remember a probation officer saying, well, we don't need to identify because what we're going to do is going to be the same as, you know, they'll get the services. And I said, no, 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 it's not going to be the same. And also to have FASD also acknowledged and recognized on a national level as a spectrum diagnosis so that we know us in the FASD community that prenatal alcohol exposure affects every unborn child in a different way. So not that cookie cutter approach, but that individualized person-centered strength-based approach. So that's wonderful. So now how can we rally the troops? How can we tell families, community members, anyone who's listening, how can our audience and listeners help getting this much needed legislation moving in the right direction? What can we do to help? Okay, that's that's an important, very important question. Uh, they can go on the NoFast website, which is nofast.org, and to register their name and contact information, you can go on there and click Policy and Training Center. And when you go there, it will be a form, and you just fill out that form and and tell us whether you're you know an advocate, a family member, caregiver, and would like to receive the policy updates and then you can put down i have an existing relationship with representatives and give you know gives us give us that or you can you can go and do that on your own or we're also going to be setting up uh meetings with advocates you know with guidance and one of the things i think a lot of people get intimidated by by this whole thing is Every advocate, if you could just write like one page of your lived experience, and if we can't even if we can't get a, a, a Zoom meeting, we can send those, or you can send those to to your congressperson because I think those are so important. So, but the the stories are going to sell this bill. I mean, they did with autism; they'll sell with this bill. Yeah. And so that's why uh, advocates can make a huge difference. So that's the first thing. Get on, you know, get on the uh, NoFest website. Uh, keep up to date with, we have our forum and that's the last Wednesday of every month. Uh, we're going to give updates on what's happening with the bill. We'll, talk, we'll be talking other policy issues. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about the uh, FASD as a disabling condition. We're also going to talk about uh, what do we need to do in the child protection uh, system to screen for this? If, is there, are there any uh, national policies that, that can help with that? So it's, it's going to continue. 
Uh, we've got a lot of great people on the um, on our committee that have experience on the Hill. So we, Mike, uh, you heard, you yes. heard him. he's a dynamo. He he's is. Great. And he's, and I am, uh, I'm willing to, you know, help with uh, advocates uh, with, with the meetings. So uh, we've got, you know, we've got our Zoom, we can do Zoom meetings and life will get back to normal with yes. the pandemic and with, with getting Congress back to normal. So I'm, yes. I'm optimistic. So sharing your story, if you're a parent or a family or a caregiver, and I, I also have heard this from many other professionals, people hear the parents and the families and the individuals living with FASD, those stories resonate the most, I think, because you're putting a face to something that previously unknown or, you know, misdiagnosed. So put your stories out there, everybody. I never thought, you know, I, I'd be doing a podcast about something that I didn't know anything, you know, much about until a few years ago, but here we are. And, and so whether you write, you know, whether you want to speak verbally, please reach out to NOFAS, contact, find out who your legislators are and start getting the ball rolling and sharing your story because that will help get things to move along. I will list the contact information that Susan has spoken of in our program notes so you can know who to contact and, um, and who to reach out to. So this has been an amazing conversation and, you know, talking about the legislation just gives me hope as a parent, you know, of a young adult that has an FASD. We have so many listeners out there that are in different uh, stages of their, their walk in caregiving, being a parent, being a loved one of someone with an FASD or even having an FASD. I like to end our episodes on a hope takeaway, something that they can take with them from this conversation. What words of hope in your many awesome years of experience and just everything you've done for the F. First of all, before we do our hope takeaway, on behalf of every parent out there, thank you, Susan. Oh my goodness, thank you for the work you've done because we wouldn't be at this juncture today without you and without all of the work that you, and just thank you. I, I'm speechless, oh. <laughs> which oh. doesn't happen often. So thank you, first of all. And, and, and secondly, what words of hope can you give to, to us weary parents out there who are, are still on this walk? Oh, well, you're very kind. And I think that, you know, I've been involved in, on this journey for over 25 years. And I don't think ever have, uh, have there been so many advocates, parents, researchers, caregivers, professionals that want to have this happen. And I think, and to ring the FASD bill, bell. And I think all of this energy uh, at this time, I think because of the pandemic, it's, it's, it, it's going to be uh, much easier for us to make it happen. And so we were, you know, we were able to do it in Minnesota and I'm a persistent person. I think that's one of probably <laughs> one of my qualities is persistence. And I'm not going to leave this alone. So this is going to happen on the national level. And, you know, we need, we need everybody to push together. And I know that I ended, uh, or I talked about a quote from Helen Keller on the uh, webinar. And I, and when you think about Helena Keller, I mean, here, 
the quote, you know, just means so much. And she's, you know, the quote was, alone, we can do so little, together, we can do so much. And that is so true, I think, with, with this, uh, this movement, this disability. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, so if you're out there and you're listening to this, this is our call to action. This is our moment, folks. This is our time to make things happen. And to hear you say that, Susan, that this will happen gives me hope. So former first lady of Minnesota and amazing advocate champion in the FASD community, Susan Shepard Carlson, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. And we will give our contact information for NOFAS um, in our program notes. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com. Or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember... To be informed, take care, and always have hope.